I am Dr. Ralph Ford, Chancellor of Penn State Barron, and you are listening to Barron Talks. My guest today is Dr. Priscilla Hamilton, a retired U.S. Army Colonel and former commander of the U.S. Army Dental Command. Welcome to the show, Priscilla. Thank you, Ralph. Well, I want to talk a little bit about your background, so I'm going to run through your bio here and your many accomplishments. Uh, but first, uh, you did attend Barron before graduating and transferring to our University Park campus, and you graduated from uh, UP in 1978. Now, since you've retired, you've become very active here on campus, and for which we are very grateful. Uh, you are a trusted advisor to our college leadership team through our Barron Council of Fellows Board of Directors, and uh, you are playing an active role in our Women's Engagement Council, which we started here in 2020, and you're doing some great things there. And, you know, I just want to run through a few other items. Uh, you know, our listeners should know that uh, you had a 33-year distinguished career in the U.S. Army. You uh, hold a DMD from the University of Pittsburgh, where you are a distinguished alumna. You have a master's in healthcare administration from Baylor University. You've got a number of different institutions. And a master's in strategic studies from the U.S. Army War College. And uh, very importantly to us, you are a Penn State Alumni Fellow, which is a recognition that we bestow on only one-tenth of one percent of our alumni. And I will say Barron College nominated you for that. And let's go a little further during, you know, I hope I've embarrassed you quite a bit, but during your time in the U.S. Army, you served in numerous command staff and operational assignments, including the U.S. Army Dental Command. You are a veteran of Operation Desert Shield slash Desert Storm, and you were awarded the Legion of Merit, the Bronze Star, and the Meritorious Service Medal. So, wow, that's uh, an awful lot, and uh, we are lucky to have you with us today. Thank you, Ralph. So when you went into dentistry, uh, were you already thinking about the Army? How did you end up in the Army? Well, I ended up in the Army as a venue to get to dental school because at the time there was a health profession scholarship and I wanted to show that I had the proclivity for military service so that I could get the funds to go to dental school, which is very expensive. And, Good uh, my, reason. My father was a faculty member here at Barrent, as you know, maybe not the highest paying <laughs> profession going, but uh, unfortunately Congress revoked that health profession scholarship program in the fall of my senior year, so... I was already committed to military service, but I had no funds to go to dental school. But it's okay. So I worked my way through school and was looking forward to the time that I could come on active duty, have a decent salary, equal pay for equal work, and a great career. Well, were you from a military family? Yes. My father was a World War II veteran, started out as a seaman second class, and uh, was commissioned and retired after 27 years in the Navy, most of it in the Navy Reserve. My brother served in the Navy. My little sister went in the Army, and I went in the Army because at that time, the Navy wasn't accepting women to go in blue water ships. So you could have shore duty or tender duty, but it was not as career-enhancing. So I went in the Army. So did you think you'd be in 33 years? I think I forgot to get out. You didn't know to get out. Well, why? You must have found something you liked about it. What was rewarding about the work? Everything. I mean, you moved every two to three years. I got to see the world thanks to the American population. I had um, met some great friends who are still friends today. So they're more like brothers and sisters, another another family. And the dental corps, I think we reached the halcyon days of the dental corps. We were able to practice perfect dentistry on people who really deserved it because they wore the cloth Mm -hmm. of the nation without any cost to them. 
that's a great place to be. And how is how is it different from civilian dentistry? What we all encounter every day, the rest of us. Well, the biggest thing is is that there's no cost to the service member, and so we would see service people of all services, depending mm -hmm. on where you were. Often things are of a joint nature: Navy, Air Force, Army. And uh, like I said, a lot of a lot of travel. So you on your downtime, it's nothing to go to France for breakfast, mm -hmm. and your children will play soccer in Germany or England or Italy. You know what kind of opportunity that is. I really do, do think that military service builds better citizens. How many did you keep track? How often did you move in the army? I've really lost track. <laughs> I'd rather not say. <laughs> there was one year I was moving every year for six years. Wow. And you were you were in combat. You were in Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And in fact, you served with the, and I want to make sure I get this right, the 257th Medical Detachment and the 5th Mobile Army Surgical Hospital. That's correct. Yeah. Mobile Army Surgical Hospital, known as MASH. MASH. So if you ever watched the... Oh, MASH all of us. Television. Yeah, we grew up in. I'm a '70s, '80s kid. Okay, that's all we ever did was watch Mash. <laughs> uh, a lot of times, work in the Fifth Mash was not too far removed from that television program. I must say that we had our quirky people, um, but unfortunately, Mashes are no longer part of the inventory. They've been replaced with different kind of deployable hospitals, but still, the concept is the same. It put medical capability far forward, so that you're able to take care of the wounded as expeditiously as possible because that's what preserves life. Well, can you, you talk a little? No, that's that's good perspective. It's They don't exist anymore. I didn't realize that. Uh, so tell us a little bit more. You know, Give us a little color as to what it was like being in a MASH. I was fortunate to be assigned to the MASH, again, by crossroads of time and geography. I had just completed my residency program in comprehensive dentistry at Fort Bragg, was um, temporarily assigned to the 257th Medical Detachment, which is kind of a ghost unit. It's only filled with professional staff when the need arises. The need arose when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. Mm -hmm. So then I was detached from one of my day job to, mm -hmm. to take part in uh, the 257th. And because I had trained under the hospital staff that were embedded in at Fort Bragg, I was asked for by name to become part of 5th MASH. Wow. So I was a dentist fulfilling the role of the oral surgeon because our oral surgeon had been elevated to be an, uh, the vice commander, so to say. And uh, I spent most of my time in the operating room not doing dentistry at all, but doing mm -hmm. general surgery. I was going to say, now, you were seeing cases of people who were, I'm sure, injured in a very serious way. For a very short period of time. The beginning, we were very bored. Mm -hmm. because the combat operations were delayed for a while. We were all kind of sitting in a ready mode. Of course, the, the fear at the time that Saddam Hussein had chemical weapons that mm -hmm. were going to be delivered by Scud missiles. So there was a lot of reactionary training on how we would handle mass casualties that way. And uh, I hope your listeners are not squeamish, but I actually participated in doing some non-combat-related surgeries, like I've done a I've done a circumcision or two. I've done a gynecomastia reduction. People can look that up in their medical dictionary. Mm -hmm. And uh, some other things that when people get bored, they find other things to occupy their time. And the surgeons <clears throat> wanted to make sure that they were still capable of performing under fire. And then when the actual shooting took place, we did have a few Iraqi wounded that we took care of, but um, some civilian wounded as well, Bedouins who had wandered into minefields and had some very grievous wow. wounds. So I got to do a lot of things that were not in the, the normal dental repertoire. Yeah, for those of you know who are younger listeners, and you've brought back memories, I had 
you know, forgotten a lot of that. I remember actually where I was when the first Gulf War started. I was working at IBM, and it just stuck in my mind. You know, Saddam Hussein invaded, and but it was really a long wait. It wasn't an immediate response. And, you know, our, our President Bush at that time built this huge coalition, and there was this massive buildup of forces, and it was, frankly, a lot of waiting, and the whole country was sitting on pins and needles. Exactly, and you probably knew more what was going on back here at home than we did in theater. Yeah, that was the first time, too, that I think really, I don't know if it was the first time, but every war, you know, the media seems to have a different increasing level of engagement and the Scud missiles and all of that, and you, that's the first time I remember you'd see that on the news, and, you know, there were reporters out there, and it became a pretty, you know, it, it, was, it, was, a, it was a big deal at that time. But it must take a, a you know, a big toll on people as well, though, who are working in your profession to be in that sort of a, an environment. Especially in a prolonged environment. We saw that in the second Gulf War where my position had changed and was more in a command and staff role. The concept of compassion fatigue, when you put professional staff there where they see these, these grievous wounds and they're doing what they can in meatball surgery to preserve life, hopefully evacuate the, the wounded back to sustained hospitals here in Konus or in Germany, but they, they get torn up themselves psychologically. Yeah, it's it's got to be a difficult thing to get through. And, uh, you know, we appreciate that you and others uh, have done this for our country for so long. And uh, after you did that, though, you went on to uh, lead the U.S. Army Dental Command, or DENCOM. And uh, that was a big assignment that you administered the uh, oral health care for the entire U.S. Army. So why don't you tell us about how did you end up in that role and what, what does that mean? Well, it was, it was the pinnacle of a command assignment, and I was the first DENCOM commander to be selected by a board instead of appointed by the Surgeon General or other leaders. So there was a peer review, essentially, that selected me to be the DENCOM commander, so I feel honored about that. And uh, it's a two-year assignment, and you try to get as much done as you can in two years, mm -hmm. building on the foundation of a previous commander, fitting the strategic vision of the Surgeon General at the time, because that's who my boss was. I was going to say, you, who, you reported to the Surgeon General? I reported to the Surgeon wow. General of the Army, uh, which is a three-star general. And uh, oftentimes, it was a very fractious time. This was... Uh, that and the few years afterwards, we were ramping up. There were you know, the rattling of battle drums was on the horizon with what was happening again back in Southwest Asia. We were really concerned about the health of the reserve components, those people who are in the National Guard and the reserve, and how do you respond to that? Mm -hmm. So we had a lot to do with policy and then delivering dental care to our reserve components. So just to give us a time frame, when were you in charge of DENCOM? From 2010 to 2012. Wow, okay. So you were overseeing DENCOM. You were managing an awful lot of people. How... <laughs> I didn't do it by myself. You didn't do it by yourself. I didn't do it by myself. But in theory, they all reported to you. I'm sure you had a large structure to do that. But uh, give us an idea of scope and scale. Well, all of the world was divided up in regional commands. So we had seven regional commanders, and beneath them would be the dental activities themselves, which were spread out over a region. For example, when I had had a previous command in the North Atlantic Regional Dental Command headquartered at Walter Reed, 
but I was dual-hatted as the Dentac commander of mm-hmm. Walter Reed. So we had Walter Reed Hospital. We also had a clinic down at Fort Belvoir. But my scope ranged from West Point in New York, which mm-hmm. you're familiar with, mm-hmm. all the way south to um, Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and as far west as Camp Atterbury, Indiana. Mm-hmm. What did you like about the job? A lot of travel. So I got a lot of frequent flyer miles. (laughs) And every region is different. I really enjoyed the people. I enjoyed the commanders I worked with. I enjoyed the mentorship, uh, being able to provide mentorship to more junior enlisted and junior officers. Uh, I think that's what makes command so rewarding. When you say you got frequent flyer miles, I just wanted, did they put you on... uh Commercial airlines, or were you flying uh, in the uh, military planes? Or Very seldom military aircraft, usually commercial aircraft. When I was in Alaska as the DENTAC commander there, I did get to fly in the general's jet back and forth between Fort Richardson, which is in Anchorage, to Fort Wainwright, which is in Fairbanks. That's over 450 ground miles, but it makes it easy when you go by jet. Well, I must tell you, I think I've told you, I have a good friend who was uh, at West Point, and he tells me the stories about how they send him to Iraq, and it didn't sound too glamorous in the back of some of those cargo planes that he would go on <laughs> last moment. So that's my vision of what, what, what happens. You know, I imagine it's really hard to, you know, everywhere it's difficult to recruit good talent. So how does the Army, particularly in a specialty like dentistry, which, you know, it's a competitive, anyone can go out there and create their own practice at any time. So was it challenging to find good people, so to speak, and keep them engaged in the Army? Very good question. First of all, that health profession scholarship program that I mentioned at the beginning was reinstated because we needed to develop our professional staff. So that is a very, very generous scholarship. It pays for all of their tuition, instruments, and books, plus a stipend that's quite generous by my standards. And uh, after their four years of dental school, they enter into the Army as a captain in 03, so they're earning captain's pay. And eventually, the big attractant there to keep them in the service is the potential for specialty training, residency training. And the Army will offer that, as does all of the services, in all of the dental specialties, oral surgery, endodontics, periodontics, prosthodontics, comprehensive dentistry, which is what I am, sort of like your internal medicine mm-hmm. physician. And uh, it's, that's a relatively rare specialty in the civilian sector still, but it enables you with advanced skills to be able to be deployed anywhere and take care of whatever's going to cross your path. It sounds like a fantastic opportunity. It is. And it still exists today. It does. And if somebody were interested, they could contact you. They could, and 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 I will direct them to the medical recruiter who will get them hooked up. All right, so they should go to the medical recruiter first. Well, the medical recruiter, and they can go to goarmy.com slash medical mm-hmm. and health profession scholarships, and they will be contacted with an AMED and Army Medical Department recruiter. Oh, excellent. Let's back up a bit, and we didn't talk much about your time here at uh, Penn State Barron, but uh, before you earned your dental degree, it all started here. Uh, you grew up in Harbor Creek, so you're back to uh, your home stomping grounds. Uh, and before you got your Bachelor of Science degree from the university, you started here at Barron. Why did you come to Barron? And what was it like then? Well, I grew up about four miles from here. Mm-hmm. If I rolled all the way downhill, I'd end up at the entrance to Barron College. <laughs> so, And my father was on faculty in continuing education. My, both of my parents are Penn State graduates. My grandfather was a wide supporter of Penn State. And so starting at a very young age, I was indoctrinated that I was going to be going to Penn State. So for financial reasons, it made sense to come to Barron. And uh, I, I loved my time here. I got to play volleyball. I was 
in the chamber orchestra. I wasn't involved in student government. My focus was really then ROTC because mm -hmm. I was always building to that goal of getting into dental school and how I was going to pay for that. But uh, I, my first love, though, was really being in the Army. It was. So you helped to create ROTC here, did you, Don? I did. We yeah. did not have it in 1974 when I started here. So I took my first ROTC courses at Gannon, and then the Army assigned the initial cadre here. First, we were working out of that garage that was opposite Irv Cockle's home. Mm -hmm. on the other Which end is of now camp, gone. Is, yeah. That's all gone. Mm -hmm. And then we were in the basement of this building for a while. And... Uh, of course, it's been moved all around ever since then. It's a little dank and dark down there, that's for well, sure. Well, I tell people, this right below the very space where we're sitting, right below my office is where Army ROTC was at that's one time. Exactly. And, well, for what it's worth, if you were to be in the basement of this old building, that would actually be the best place. It's the most <laughs> modern part of the building. Now we've cut it up, and you know, it's not the big open room that it was before. But anyways, how about? But it sounds like you knew not only that you were interested in an army career, but did you know early on that you were interested in dentistry? Well, again, I'll go back to my maternal grandfather that was telling me I was going to be a doctor, and all of these little stories and vignettes about being a doctor. And then, as at the time when you were applying for college, you had to get a certificate of your health. So I walked into Dr. Van Marder and Dr. Van Damia's office. They were my physicians. And there were sick people all over the place. You know, snotty noses, coughing. And the staff was overworked and disgruntled. And it was just not real pleasant. Then you walk into Dr. Reichel's office, my dentist, and there's a nice <laughs> aquarium, and it smells a little bit like cloves, and the dental hygienist, the office manager, is very pleasant. And it's kind of like, I like the structured life. So, And you still get to be called doctor, although often the medical world doesn't consider dentists as professional peers. That's okay. We, right. we, we know our place. Mm -hmm. And um, so it was a perfect fit for me. There's a lot of art involved in dentistry, which I really appreciate. There's a lot of psychology. You can have the best hands in the world, but if your patient won't sit in the chair, it's all for naught. Yeah. And um, it was a great <laughs> fit for me in the, in the Army. <laughs> yeah, you are right. I mean, you, for a long time, and a lot of people may not remember, when you used to go to the doctor's office, it was a different experience. First of all, you'd sit in a waiting room, at least my experience as a youngster, and then you would... You know, you'd basically get in line, and you might sit there three hours before the doctor who was meeting everybody for everything, and everyone was cough. Versus, yeah, the dentist's office, hands down, was a better experience. <laughs> you know, frankly, doctor's offices are a lot better now than they used to be when you walk in the front door. So, uh, well, that's so you knew what you wanted to do, and uh, you came here to Barron, and now after all of these years, you've come back, you retired, and. And when you came back into the area, you came to campus and said, hey, I'd like to get involved, and uh, we are very grateful for that. And you're a member of the Council of Fellows Board of Directors, which is a really important advisory group for us. So what made you decide to do that? Was it just happenstance? You saw the campus here? Or you were pretty intentional about it? I think I got shanghaied by Margie Taylor, first to get involved with the development committee. And then from that stemmed an appointment onto the Council of Fellows. And uh, I take those duties very seriously. I am so enthused about where Erie is positioned right now. Having left here, been away for 30-some years, and then you come back, there's a, a sense of urgency, anticipation, and hope, I think is what, how I would describe it. 
And it's, it's fun to be part of that as we shape the future. And I really feel strongly that Behrend, no pun intended, with the Keystone State mm -hmm. is a linchpin in this whole endeavor. Well, thank you. And I mean, you've been very active on our board, has been supportive and driving of the activities that we do and everything from uh, social economic development, the work we do at CORE. We could go on and on and on. And I know that you're very passionate about that. So tell me, you know, before you came on to the Council of Fellows board and now that you're on, how has your, your perspective changed about what Barron does? I'm even more enthused. I mean, there's so much improvement, technology. We have a wide range of interests that we are infused, we're connected with, and I think it's all for the good. I'm very excited about what's happening with Eagle's Nest. I'm excited about what's happening environmentally with Project Resolve, with the MWRI, the ability to now bring high-tech, biotech, and things that are going to really change the world right here in our backyard. And people tend to dismiss Erie, and here just recently we are named the number one best small city in the country. I think that's a wonderful thing to crow about. We need to get that word out. We are the number one best small city. I can tell you I travel a lot. It's always great to be back here, and uh, people uh, underestimate just uh, how wonderful this place is, and we're happy to be part of it. And I'd be remiss not to mention, uh, you know, that Margie Taylor had uh, an important role in bringing you in. Margie was our director of development and uh, always connecting us with people in the community, many of whom have gone on to do great things for us, so... She really played an important role in there, and we'll make sure she gets this podcast. That'll be great. So one of the areas, though, that you are particularly involved in is a group that we created in 2020 known as the Women's Engagement Council. Tell us, what is the Women's Engagement Council? Who was it made up of? What do you do? What's your mission? Well, we're made up of staff and faculty and Friends of Barron, and our council is growing. We're modeling ourselves after the Council of Fellows, so we do have a board of directors and an enlarging council. We just brought in over a dozen new members to include community members and some young alums. And even though we're all made up of women right now, it is not exclusively by women, but it is for women to advance women in leadership, to provide positive role models, to bring women's issues to the fore as points of discussion and communication and education. So I think it's got an important role as to leverage the endeavors that are already on campus. So sometimes we're not recreating the wheel, we're just helping to spur things along. Well, you've already done so many things. Recently you gave out the first Mary Barron Impact Award to our board chair. And Scott, so what's the idea behind this new award that you created? Well, that stemmed from a Women of Impact Award that had been at the university and then went fallow. And so we built on that foundation and tweaked it a little bit. And in the spirit of Mary Barron's philanthropic efforts and her community engagement, that's sort of the tenets of what will be the award winner for the Mary Barron Impact Award. Not isolated to be conferred to a woman, mm -hmm. but to anyone who had is committed to Barron, who's committed to advancing women's issues and creating those opportunities for women to thrive. Well, I think it was great, the selection of Ann Scott as the first recipient. We agree. Yeah. And uh, you also have created a 5K Women's Run? That's correct. That was our first major event last August. It's on deck again for this coming August 27th. It was very well attended for its first year. And so that's our commitment to activity and health, and it's open to men and women. So it runs right up here in Knowledge Park, which is a beautiful route. So we're looking forward to that. And 
next week, next Wednesday, we have our first signature major speaker event in the Blue Chair Chat. There's, yeah, the Blue Chair Chat. Blue Chair Tell Chat. Tell us about that. Well, that will feature Ashley Walters. Uh, she and her husband owned uh, Onyx Corporation here in Erie. It is now an employee-owned company. She was the former president. They've moved out of state. But here she represents, she's a chemical engineer. Mm -hmm. She's an author that wrote the book, Leading with Grit and Grace. She is a company executive, and it's not in something that you would think is fluffy. They build industrial furnaces Mm -hmm. for a variety of industries. And she's a mom, and she's also a parental caregiver. So she covers a lot of the bases that I think human beings would be interested in hearing her speak. I think so, and I'm looking forward to it, and I personally know Ashley, and uh, she is just, uh, you know, uh, a phenom, I think, a chemical engineering degree, running Onyx. Now they have sold it as of late. Uh, author, her book, Leading with Grit and Grace, has a lot of wisdom in it, and uh, I'm sure whatever her next venture in life, it will be exciting. So uh, she's, she's just a great achiever and supporter of Barron as well. And also, by the way, a member of our board of directors is exactly. too. So uh, that's just great to see. So how will you know what success looks like for the Women's Engagement Committee? I think as people turn to WEC for support in their own endeavors, as we grow our council, as we continue to link with existing programs on campus, uh, I think that's when we're going to get, I don't say notoriety, but just recognition. And we couldn't thrive without the support of all of the schools here on Penn State Barron. So we're also looking at ways of giving back in the future. Oh, that's great. Well, we're coming to the end of our program. So let me finish up with this question for you. As I said earlier, in 2019, uh, you were named an alumni fellow. And I will tell you, that was a really special ceremony, by the way. That was just, uh, for for those who are... uh, In our listening audience, you can actually Google it and go see it on YouTube and see your acceptance speech. It was the best of the night, and I'm not biased at all, but it really was. And uh, everyone, I'm sure, will agree with me on that, but it was was great. But in the years since, you've been really active and engaged with Barron. Why do you feel the need to give back, and what do you take away from this yourself? I strongly believe that we are all called to serve, and I was just led here. That simple. That's simple. Yeah. It's great that you're in a position where you can do that. Well, is there anything else you would like to add before we, uh, we finish up here today? I just hope that the students and the parents of students here at Penn State Barron appreciate what a jewel they have in their backyard. I'm a very proud Penn State Barron alum. Even though I did receive my degree from the University Park campus, my heart belongs to Barron. Well, it's all part of Penn State. We appreciate the very kind words about Barron. It is truly a special place, and uh, you've been a great guest. I've enjoyed the conversation. I am Dr. Ralph Ford, Chancellor of Penn State Barron, and you have been listening to Barron Talks. My guest today was Dr. Priscilla Hamilton, a retired U.S. Army colonel and Barron alumna. Thank you. You're welcome.